Today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talked to Kyle Scheidler and Mike Waller, and we're talking to them about a bunch of just general national security and foreign policy questions that, to people like Mike and Kyle, who have studied this stuff for their entire lives, are very simple and straightforward. But to people that aren't watching the news and looking at what's going on in Afghanistan or China or Russia every single day, these questions kind of help set a foundation for why the United States does the things they do with respect to foreign policy and national security. We get into the idea of background checks for elected members of Congress. We talk about whether or not Edward Snowden should be treated as a hero or a villain. And we finish by talking about what Mike and Kyle think is the greatest national security threat to the United States right now. The first question for Kyle is, how can Biden fly in, what's, I don't even know the right term, I don't care, illegal, illegals to states and say you have to take them? Can the governor just refuse to do that? Right. So the question is, you know, once you have a uh, illegal immigrant or migrant, they've declared themselves to the Border Patrol, they've been processed by the Border Patrol, and that's the vast majority of what we're seeing right now in the crisis at the southern border is individuals or family groups crossing, declaring asylum to the Border Patrol. Uh, now, once they have done that, uh, they have to be processed as an asylee. And later on, a immigration judge will make a ruling on their case. But while they're awaiting that, uh, ruling, they are essentially uh, given papers to indicate that they're allowed to be in the country. But literally everyone is claiming asylum, right? Correct. Yeah. Nearly everyone. Uh, Who ex- isn't claiming asylum? Uh, single uh, single males, uh, individuals with uh, criminal records, uh, individuals with gang ties. These are the types of people that cross and attempt not to be caught uh, by the Border Patrol. So the problem that we have at the southern border is the Border Patrol is spending all of its time processing asylum claims uh, and is not getting to do what they really should be doing, which is focusing on people uh, trying to avoid detection. Now, the law says that if you declare asylum, you must declare it at an official border crossing point, uh, and you cannot declare asylum uh, if you have passed through a safe third country. So, for example, if you come from Venezuela you go into Mexico and you cross through Mexico to the United States and declare asylum in the United States, you're not eligible for asylum, according to the law. But we're not simply disregarding that and sending people back. We're, uh, we're, we're processing those claims and treating them as serious. Now, they may or may not end up winning their asylum claim in court. In all likelihood, they won't win, but they'll just disappear uh, when, they, when they realize that their, their case isn't going to go the way they want it to. And so it enables people to, to disappear. The question is to the movement around the country. At the southern border, we have so many people crossing that the local communities there are totally overwhelmed. Um, they, they cannot handle it. They don't have enough hotel rooms. They don't have enough buses and to move people. Uh, they don't have any place to keep them. Uh, and so they're, they're desperate to get people out of the local area where they immediately crossed as quickly as possible. So you do have the federal government facilitating that movement. Uh, most of these people will pay for their own travel or they will reimburse uh, some refugee agency for their travel. Um, but once they are moved about, essentially once you are uh, processed by the Border Patrol, you are free to move around the country wherever you like. 
So uh, most of these people will say where it is they're trying to go, uh, either because they already have family there or because they have job prospects there, uh, and they will they will go there, and that's where they will they will end up living. Uh, but the U.S. law, the way it currently works, we just don't have the ability legally to stop uh, someone and say, no, you must stay in this area. Uh, it's the same problem we're having with example uh, Afghan evacuees who we're bringing into military bases from we brought into military bases from Afghanistan and some of them just walked off the military base because they're not I mean they're not accused of any crime we can't detain them uh, they simply just go where they they choose to go now this is not the way that a lot of countries deal with refugees and asylum seekers a lot of them will say no you're going to stay in this refugee camp until we can figure out what to do with you or we can send you back but that's not the way the united states deals with it but if there's a state that says hey we don't want more refugees or we don't have the capacity for this could they say send them somewhere else so technically the what happens is the federal government contracts with what are called volags or voluntary agencies uh, these agencies may be secular or they may have a religious bent, but their whole purpose for existing is to process refugees. Uh, and they usually get paid by the federal government per person hmm. that they that they resettle. And their job is to set them up with a place to live, um, you know, find them an apartment, find them sheets, find them food uh, till they can get settled in. Who is getting fun? Who's funding those organizations? The federal government. Federal government pays so the them. The more to do they that. take on, the the better it is. The more for people them. they, the more people they process, the more they get paid. Got it. And now, supposedly, this should all be done in concert, in consultation with the state, uh, each state government. But in practice, that's not what happens. In, in practice, the states have very little influence on which refugees they're going to get, or uh, and have very little ability to say no. We don't want to resettle refugees here. And as I said, in, as a matter of practice, once they're processed into the United States, they have the right to go anywhere they please. So even if you had, an ex for example, Maine said they wanted to take them and Florida said they didn't want to take them, in practice, there would be no way to stop refugees from moving to Florida later if they chose to. Okay. So this question will be a good starting point. It ties into what you just talked about, Kyle. Um, it'll kind of lay the roadmap for everything else. Can you guys just distinguish between national security and foreign policy? Because I think they're used interchangeably, but there are some important distinctions between them, right? Yeah, there are big distinctions. Uh, foreign policy is defined by national security. So foreign policy is the policy of the United States toward the rest of the world based on what it has decided its own national interests are to secure the country. That's what it should be. Is that how it works, though? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I should have said that. That's how it should be. <laughs> uh, now, foreign policy is pretty much on autopilot, except for where it's tweaked here and there, depending on who's president or who's secretary of state or which foreign power is manipulating us. So, but, but the way it ought to be, the way it was designed, even before there was a term called national security, our foreign policy is is determined by the president uh, with funding as needed from Congress, but by the president to, according to what that president views are the best interests of the United States. So for example, we didn't really have the concept until after World War II, but we've always had it um, without the name since George Washington's time. So 
So as a follow-up to that, who decides, you kind of answered it, the president decides foreign policy. Right. The president constitutionally does it through the secretary of state, who is the chief operating officer, so to speak, of that policy for our diplomatic relations with other countries. But what you'll find in practice, and Mike alluded to this, is that uh, very often the agencies themselves, uh, particularly leading with the State Department, will make a lot of those decisions. Um, you know, in cases where we have a very high high profile interest in a country, uh, that's going to be where you have your your major you know politically appointed ambassadors, right? So. Britain, we're going to have somebody that was appointed by the president. Russia, we're going to have somebody appointed by the president to be ambassador. And they're probably going to be relationships between the president and the ambassador and the host country. But in much of the world where we don't really have much of a policy or we don't have a major presidential uh, drive for policy, the State Department is going to be just deciding who's going to be the ambassador to that country, who's going to represent us to that country, what our policy towards that country is going to be. Uh, so, you know, for much of the much of the world, uh, that actually gets decided at a much lower level than the president. And that's not always a bad thing, because when you have career diplomats who become our ambassadors in non-controversial areas, uh, they're really best equipped intellectually and with knowledge and everything else with their human networks to be the U.S. representative in those countries and then to advise the president and the secretary of state on what policies to pursue. Yeah, assuming that they, I think the joke is that there should be an American desk at the State Department because a lot of times the ambassadors get so wrapped up in, and the the careerists get wrapped up in what the country wants from us rather than what we should ask of the country. Yeah, you do get clientitis in that area if you specialize too much in a certain country or spend too much time there. There's a danger that you'll identify just by human nature more with the country that you're in rather than the country that you're representing, which is why you have rotations in general uh, among diplomats in the State Department. So we sort of alluded to it. The president kind of sets the stage for foreign policy and everything, but then all the other bureaucratic institutions take place in it too. What role does Congress have in deciding this policy or carrying it out, if any? Congress controls the money. So you have uh, all sorts of interests in Congress, representations of different states, different congressional districts, different businesses, different other constituencies, as well as foreign powers who have influence over those lawmakers. So Congress has two roles in foreign policy, three roles in foreign policy making. They have the uh, budgetary uh, appropriations process, which is to provide the money for our diplomatic service and our foreign policy, but they can also say how the money can or cannot be spent. Then you have the authorization process, which is just related to, to the appropriations process, which allows or disallows the State Department to do certain things. And then you have the oversight process, which is sort of a troubleshooting process where Congress brings diplomats or foreign policy leaders to Congress to testify about what's going right and what's going wrong. And I think, Mike, uh, I mean, at least my view is that the, the oversight issue is where we have a bit of a problem because over the past several decades, the Congress has moved away from its primary focus on budgets and uh, legislation doing you know, really top-level stuff and very much become focused on doing nitty-gritty 
oversight stuff. And what we see now is increasingly, especially uh, with powerful senators or powerful congressmen who have been in for a long time and control significant committees, you start to see uh, relations between those committee chairmen or those those powerful legislators and the bureaucrats that run the agencies. And so they are, in, in, in a way, the, bureau, the bureaucrats are able to use Congress to shield them from the president, uh, who is supposed to be directing the policy. Uh, and so I, th- I think that's one of the things that, well, obviously, oversight's important. It has been misused uh, in, in modern times. Well, it also, so Congress creates the agencies, and what they should do is write a law, but instead they, they create an agency and say, okay, you guys decide, you know, tell us how to run this, do a report, and we'll give you the budget for it. And then instead of Congress being accountable for whatever goes wrong, they can pull in a bureaucrat and say, you know, they get the news clip of them acting tough, but then they're not, no one's held responsible. So it's beneficial to everyone. Yeah, and what you end up with is instead of doing things the constitutional way, you know, as listed, um, you know, in the founding documents, what you get is a series of opaque, bureaucratic, Byzantine relationships where if you want to achieve something in foreign policy, you have to talk to the right bureaucrat who then knows which committee staffer to talk to to get a thing done uh, that may or may not be uh, what the president seeks to do. And then, you know, you have that, that good, and that good, works its way all the way up and, and down the bureaucracy. So and you have bureaucrats going against the president all the time. Depend, depends on the president, but. No, really, again, in any president, I mean, they're, they're going to do what they think is right either for the country or a lot of them are going to do what they think is right for their own personal agendas or something. But they, they'll go behind the president and the secretary of state all the time, even under this administration. Constitutionally, what are its, um, Congress has money, they have to, the Senate should advise and consent on treaties. I mean, we should obviously also mention uh, war-making powers, which are vested fully in the Congress. Uh, In practice, they don't get used uh, anymore. Uh, You know, what instead we have had is very broad authorizations of military force, uh, which Congress has approved and then just kept open for, for decades in some cases. You know, that's like our current authorization of military force against al-Qaeda. Um, oh, the and Korean a, and a, War is not legally over. And appointments <laughs> to um, the Senate confirms appointments of ambassadors and those things. What else can Congress do? Uh, I mean, they can they can issue letters of marquee and reprisal. Uh, so if we wanted to, to, to create a privateer fleet and, uh, I don't know, go sink Somali pirates or something, you could do that. Congress could do that without approval from president. Do you guys think that this system, because... It is a big bureaucratic process, which it should be. It shouldn't be straightforward and only one or two people involved. But is it bad that there are so many different actors involved in deciding our foreign policy? Because like Kyle said, like these cliques can form. I would say way. it should be straightforward. And it should, I mean, you're going to have to have more right. than one you don't or want two to people. Be, but you don't want just to be like between Biden and Blinken and that's it. Right. Well, you want you want each branch of government to stay within their delineated powers. So the president is doing those things what the president is authorized to do. And he is getting what he needs from Congress, whether it's budgets approved or um, officials confirmed by the Senate or treaties confirmed by the Senate. I mean, if you want to talk about end runs, a classic example of this was the Obama administration's uh, 
Iran deal, uh, they, they never took it to the Senate where they knew they couldn't get it passed as a treaty. And therefore, they had no way to legally obligate previous or, or future uh, administrations to adhere to it. So the way they tried to get around this was by going to the United Nations and making it some kind of big United Nations thing, which I mean legally means nothing in our system. Uh, and and so, so if then, you don't do things if yeah. you don't do things the delineated way, what you end up with is all of these end runs around the the system the way it's supposed to work. But then Trump could just get rid of it, which is what he did. Yeah, had it been a treaty, there would have had to been a Trump would have had to have the votes in Congress to get rid of that treaty. Correct. Right. The treaties are legally binding. Yeah. As opposed to a policy, which is not legally binding. Yeah. Um, Are there background checks into congressional or into elected officials? No. Or any political appointees? Appointees, yes, I think, but not... uh, Political appointees, yes. Congressional staff, uh, if they are given top secret clearances, yes. But elected officials, there are no background checks on them at all. Uh, the reason being that you have now the, the public has essentially cleared those elected officials because that's the will of the public in, in a functioning electoral process. So, and that's the clearance process because then you could have the FBI deciding, well, we don't like this congressman, so we're not going to let him. Right. Cleared. And then, but, I mean, when also we talk about appointees, now technically the president as an elected official can direct any of his any of his uh, people be given a clearance. He is the ultimate clearance authority. Right. The president can clear anything that's classified that he wants. He can clear any individual person he wants to see any material that he wants. In practice that doesn't happen. In practice uh, the intelligence community will often use clearances against appointees, uh, against staff that that the president wants. Uh, or that or that Congress members want uh, in order to make things difficult for them. They also trick people. Like Trump kept wanting stuff declassified, and he kept getting told no. But he could have. He could have done it with. He could have forced it. Yeah. Well, I mean, very but often people just the, kept saying, the, "Oh, you have to go. You have to wait. You have to go through this." And bureaucrats are sneaky, so. They and just, you have you have to know what the thing is in yeah. order to declassify it. Yeah. And, and this often, is where the permanent state comes in to usurp the powers of the president when they take his legal powers away from him. So in theory, uh, someone that's running for some random congressional office in Iowa or somewhere, if they had, you know, a sketchy and murky background, but they won that election, they could then get a security clearance just because of that. Yeah. Or they'd be entitled to classified information without a security clearance at all. That's something that's always been confusing to me, where you could have two people with the exact same backgrounds, like the things that would make you not get a clearance, just smoking pot or doing drugs or something. But then if you just win an election, then you get access to that stuff that the right. other person wouldn't. There are several yeah, members like now you, that should not <laughs> have access well, to yeah, classified I mean, Just think, if, if you as a, as a staffer, let's say you want to become a CIA officer or you want to be a House Intelligence Committee staffer, uh, if you were having an affair with a Chinese communist spy, you would not be Eric Swalwell. at all. Yeah. But if you're a member of Congress on the Intelligence Committee who has oversight of our intelligence services and counterintelligence services, and you have an affair with a Chinese spy... There's nothing the FBI or anyone else can do about it as long as the Speaker of the House and the party leadership want you on that committee. And this was the idea of having select committees in Congress where there's just a couple, like the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, meaning 
it's not your average schmuck who's going to be appointed to that committee in theory. <laughs> it's that the leadership of, the, of each party vets them. Okay, well, so-and-so is a big mouth. So-and-so is careless. So-and-so is, 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 is crooked, whatever. So we'll just put patriots on that committee, liberal and conservative. And, and you see that's completely broken down. Yeah, but that's, it just makes no sense how Congress has all these stupid bureaucratic rules and everything, but for something as serious as getting access to classified information just because you won an election, you can get access to that. It just makes no sense to me. But I think it's good because otherwise, if it were the current case now, no Republican would get any access at all. I mean, at some point, I think it's better to have it closer. You know, if people are dumb enough to elect Adam Schiff or Ilhan Omar, Eric Swalwell, there's a bunch. I could keep naming names. Um, then, you know, that's what they get. That's what the that district deserves. And even though it's but a lawmaker is not entitled to classified information. It's on a no, need to know basis if you're on the committee. Oh, that's true. So that's and, on and that's on Pelosi. If you're on the select committee, you can't have top secret. You can get a sensitive briefing, but if you're on the select committee like intelligence, you can get you can get a lot more information. A lot. It's it's mainly on a need to know basis for oversight purposes, but you can get a lot. On the other hand, if you're chairman of the, the House Judiciary Committee, you have oversight of the FBI. Mm. You're entitled to anything related to counterintelligence and anything that's FBI related because it's part of the Department of Justice and you control their budget and their authorizing. But somebody like Jerry Nadler, who's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, has been in league with, you know, communist terrorists for 30 years, nearly 40 years. Uh, and he's the one who you know, pr pressured President Clinton to free the 1983 Capitol bomber, Susan Rosenberg. So with people like that running our committees, you can see the FBI answers to them. So staying on the subject of releasing classified information, everything, this is not an easy question at all, but Mike and Kyle, is Edward Snowden a traitor or a hero? I know people on the left side have certain opinions and people on the right side have certain opinions. And Well, let's look at Snowden objectively. Uh, if you're a government employee or a contractor and you've been given a security clearance at taxpayer expense to go through a full field background investigation, your sworn duty is to protect American secrets. But you take someone else's shopping list, say some spy who's been going around getting all the names of documents that you then collect, and then you release costing us as taxpayers billions of dollars in wasted intelligence, costing careers of countless intelligence professionals who spent their lives on these programs, and, and costing us providing our technological capabilities to our enemies doing this. And then you defect to Vladimir Putin's Russia. Are you a patriot? I don't think so. Why would people say that he is, though? Well, I mean, I think you can make a distinction between some of the issues that the information released by Snowden raised about uh, the use of certain surveillance techniques and stuff. Um, th those are some of those are legitimate questions. It was what 2014 that he de he released documents showing the Prism intelligence. They were spying on U.S. citizens and gathering all of our metadata. Right, and still are. Nothing's changed. Right now, there was there was. I mean not necessarily anything unauthorized about the program, but the American people did not really understand the extent of it or the nature of it. Um, but that is a different thing from, as Mike says, 
you know, turning over the family jewels while fleeing to Vladimir Putin's Russia. If he was a legitimate whistleblower, there were ways that he could have released the same information or could have raised the same issues uh, and not behaved in the way that he did. Uh, and he, not and not have had the the uh, relationships that he had um, prior to the incident that he had. Um, what do you mean by that? Meaning connections with uh, Julian Assange and the sorts of things that were going on. So you mean he was manipulated by foreign intelligence? Is that what you're implying? It's suggestive that he is. I don't know that we have we know that that for a fact, but it's suggestive that he was. And as I said, there's just a difference between having a personal concern or objection and taking the whistleblower route, which we know many people who have been whistleblowers, both in the IC and in other agencies who do the right thing. And, and there are a bunch of different ways to raise those concerns. Uh, and ultimately, you know, even if, you know, at the end of the day, he couldn't get any of the elected officials to take them, take him seriously, he could still call, you know, a, a press conference and, you know, Times Square, uh, you don't have to go to, you don't have to go to Russia to do that. So people and just were, be, get arrested and accept that. Accept that, that. That's civil disobedience. Yeah. But the thing is with, the, with someone like Snowden, he was a very low level contractor. He wasn't even a full employee. And he, the way classified information is kept secure is it's compartmented so that uh, any of us here around this table talking won't know what the other one knows and won't have access to that information because we don't have a need to know. Somebody on the outside knew what to look for and Snowden was provided with a shopping list of highly classified material to which he would not have had access. But once you know the name or the file number to go for, you can collect that stuff. The fact that he put all that together, broke compartmentation, and then released it to the public was a was a felony on many counts. It doesn't matter if we like what he said. It matters that he broke the law. And if you break the law, then you have to pay. So that's more so. It's not the information he was releasing, but it's the fact that he was releasing this information that pisses most people off. Right? I mean, it's a felony, and he sh but I'm personally glad to know what he did release. He should have done it differently, I agree. But I think the... I don't think the government, I, I don't think that they should have that access. I don't think they're, they're catching any terrorists with, I mean, they may have, but, um, yeah, so he should be in jail, but I'm glad to know what he released because the government is totally overreaching and spying on citizens and that hasn't ended well in the last few years. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, you know, what we've learned subsequently with the, the Trump Russia collusion investigation, et cetera people have a lot less confidence in the intelligence community than they used to, uh, and rightly so. So we are often sort of looking back at the situation saying, knowing now what we know, you know, how much confidence do we have in them and other things that they were doing. But we shouldn't necessarily let that blind us to the fact that uh, Snowden was, as Mike said, operating for a different set of priorities and for a different, different purpose and in collusion with other people. Yeah, so this next one is a question we get all the time. What is a think tank, Mike? Well, a think tank is many things to many people, but it's really a place where subject matter experts can actually sit back and think about big issues and come up with solutions to them without the day-to-day -day distractions of policy and politics and all this other stuff. So it's a 
it, it, somebody needs to do those deep dives to become real experts on issues and put a lot of thought and contemplation and consideration into serious issues. That's what think tanks are supposed to be. And they publish their findings or their conclusions or they work out policy strategies where the average person in the government is way too busy to consider any of this. Okay, but I'm going to challenge you here. They're basically just holding cells for people in government until the next administration. But is it practical? Because you have what professors tend to, I mean, shouldn't it be based on what's pra- what's practical versus what's theoretical? You need both. You, you need to philosophically based policies. That, and then you need to make sure that the philosophical part is also practical. You need to be true to American founding principles and real American national interest. Uh, if you're on the other side, you need to subvert all that. Regardless, there needs to be a place for people to really concentrate on this, learn about it, discuss it, become the top experts on it, so that they can either work with people inside the policy community and in the media or the public to inform people of their findings and conclusions, and then also be a holding place for people in between presidential terms because you you need real experts in any presidential administration. You can't just, the president can't just name everybody, every hack to become a government official. You need to have serious experts. Yeah, but what, okay, Dr. Fauci is considered a real expert and he's a moron. He's been in government forever and doesn't, he hasn't practiced medi- medicine in decades. Clearly is way too focused on his one little segment, didn't think about any of the other effects of his, you know, um, kingly orders, essentially. What, I don't see the, I mean, I guess he is in government, but wouldn't someone that's actually a doctor that has um, better on the ground information, so to speak, be more useful? Well, you'd have to ask President Trump, who appointed him to the COVID position, and President Biden, who saw fit to keep him in that position, or the Chinese regime, who loves him so much because he was funding uh, programs at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that he never came clean on. Uh, This is a case where you have a complete corruption of of permanent bureaucracy people, where somebody like Fauci, he's the highest paid government employee in America at his current health institute status. So that's not really a think tank, but it's that's more that's more part of the permanent government. I mean, why do you have to have okay, so let's is an expert let's talk about give me a country. Russia, uh, let's say. Botswana. Why do you have to have an expert in, yeah, that's not going to be helpful. Um <laughs> wouldn't you just call in people, journalists that have worked in the country, historians, dissidents, they would give you far better advice than someone that's been in DC their entire life just writing articles, right? Let's say you're on the National Security Council staff. You're advising the president on what to do, or, or you're advising the secretary of state on what to do. You don't have time to make all those calls. They, these people don't have secure phones. If uh, foreign intelligence services are monitoring your conversations, they'll be able to figure out what the president's interests are, or what the policymakers' interests are. You need to rely on people who, who are real, um, organic, internal experts on uh, they're different subjects, and you have to have people who's they travel there, they know the opposite parties, they they might speak the languages, and they're genuine experts on it, and they would have a political or a philosophical standpoint that a president would ordinarily trust. Okay, but let's take that. Let's take what you just described. 
those people to to go to China, for example, and to do any kind of research there and to speak the language, you have to get a visa, which means that the Chinese government has to approve that. And they're not going to approve anyone that has half a brain cell. So they go and the Chinese government picks them up in a limo and shows them all the nice stuff. And then they come back very convinced of their own, you know, experience and say, no, China's great. You guys don't get it. China just wants peace with us. They're easy to manipulate. Well, that, that's somebody who's a tool versus a real expert. And they're what? pretty easy to figure out, especially if you've been around. Apparently, Washington they're not to easy to figure out. They are if you want to see them. It's like anything else. We don't see what we don't want to see. I mean, I think I so I come from this uh, I come from this perspective that uh, I see what, what Morgan is getting at, and part of the rise of think tanks is indeed due to the rise of the administrative state and the existence of the permanent bureaucracy. Um, however, given that that exists as it presently does. Having think tanks on the outside allow uh, elected officials who do not have access or are not friendly to the administrative state and the bureaucracy to call on other experts to counter what they're saying. And so, uh, because if you're not, you know, if you're not in office, if you're not, uh, if you're not the party in power, you control the presidency and stuff. You don't have access to the IC. You don't have access to the State Department or, or what have you. You need somebody else to to be able to talk to and be able to ask questions to, to be able to guide you in, in looking in the right direction so that you can do your job of holding those people accountable. Uh, now, obviously, I think the preferred situation would be that there wasn't a deep state bureaucracy uh, that needed to be held to account. But, but given that they exist, there need to be think tanks who understand the issues, who are paying attention to what's going on, so that our elected officials have access to someone that, that they can help uh, can help guide them policy-wise when they can't count on the bureaucracy. Okay, so now I'm really putting you on the spot. Um, what do we consider the center? I, we've kind of bristle at the idea of being fully a think tank. Mike, since you've been around um, the longest, since basically since the beginning, what would you say to that? Think tanks are older than I am. So no, think good. tanks are older than you are, but I mean at the center's yeah. existence. Well, some think tanks just do deep dive research that you need done <laughs> for policy purposes. <laughs> sounded like you said deep diary. <laughs> deep no, deep we're dive thinking about, about <laughs> presidential <laughs> matters. No, deep dive okay. issues. So they, they really get down and they're able to, with, with scholarly precision, but with policy relevance. So it's not just gobbledygook. Language. I would say mostly it, it's just not relevant in most think tanks, but no, I take I your point. I don't really, I don't think so. They, the, a lot of them produce useful information. Now, a lot of think tanks are junk. A lot of their their crap quality. They're run by hacks, and they're just a fundraising mill for for semi competent people. Name them. Just, no, just I, <laughs> no, kind of why you do. <laughs> uh, others are are foreign funded front groups. Mm -hmm. And if they're not literally front groups, they act as front groups because they're being funded under the table or even directly by uh, some jihadist regimes in the Middle East or by communist China or Russian interests and that sort of thing. Brookings Institute. Brookings Institute being one of them. And so, so CSIS is another one. Well, well, CSIS, that's the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which used to be part of Georgetown University. It actually broke off from Georgetown because it was considered too conservative. 
Oh, well, they uh, years ago. Now it's they've really taken money from China forever. Right. So they've really gone all around. So this is where you get uh, foreign regimes and, and our foreign enemies funding the think tanks that drive uh, analysis and and perceptions and policy in Washington. And it's all done under the guise of education because these are generally nonprofit organizations. OK, so how is the center different the Center for Security Policy. Yeah, where well, we, we don't accept foreign funds, which is why we're so small. Uh, look how the, uh, the so the, the establishment types give money. If you're you can stray a certain amount to left and right, and they'll still fund you. But it's mainly funding a lot of groupthink. It's self-affirming what everybody else says. So, CSIS and Atlantic Council and will confirm. Brookings, and they'll all scratch each other's backs and invite each other to each other's events and get university professorships and so forth. Small groups like the Center and a couple other contemporaries that we have are marginalized off to the side, and we're not part of the club because we tend to call things as we see them, and we're not part of that group think. I mean, I would say that's the, the fundamental difference about the Center is that um, we call things as we see them. There's no institutional bias or pressure on any of us here at the Center that we have to come down a certain way on a particular topic. Um, everybody is here at the center, at least in my experience, because they want to be in a place where they can tell the truth about the topics that they care most about. Um, and in terms of you know being a deep dive uh, think tank uh, versus a uh, center for action and policy, the center exists in a nice sweet spot, sort of right in the middle. You know, we do do larger reports and, and we will write books uh, about topics that need to, you know, need a deep dive. But then that's not the end of it. That's not the purpose of the thing in and of itself. The real purpose is to take that information and the things that we've, we've learned in our research and help, um, you know, local officials state officials, federal officials, elect, you know, elected and, and appointed, uh, do their jobs better for the American people in a way that is uh, that comports with, with America's founding principles. You know, so when you're raising, Morgan, all of these issues of, you know, the administrative state and the bureaucracy and saying, you know, this these are all the things that they have in their corners. People, you know, tons of people paid to do their job every day uh, to, to put up information that's not that great. Uh, and a lot of, you know, a lot of elected officials in Washington, you know, they don't have anybody else to turn to to help them out other than the center. Yeah. And I think so. And what another where big I, thing about the center, too, is that out of principle, there are donations that we won't take. Right. If we have been offered sums of money in the past that we've turned down or have discouraged the prospective donors from even approaching us, it would have been to our great corporate benefit and we could have got you know, raised everybody's salaries and had a lot more output and hired a lot more people. But out of principle, we turned that down because it would compromise our independence. So that's a real rarity in Washington. Yeah. I think what I bristle at is the experts that, yes, historical context, knowing the language is important um, and it can be helpful in analysis. What Where it becomes ridiculous is when that doesn't you know, align with common sense and people still go with that expert because, and they get stuck in these cycles of the same crappy argument over and over that clearly doesn't work, but they, you know. I mean, we saw that in our analysis of, of jihadist ideology and, and, and Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, 
where you know we were told, well, you can't consider yourself an expert on on jihad uh, because you don't speak Arabic and you haven't right. uh, you haven't spent you know a decade in uh, in the local madrasa. Um, and we say, well, actually, I can read this book, which was written in English for English speakers uh, who are practicing Muslims and, and to recruit uh, English speakers into jihad. And I can see what it says and I can uh, analyze from that perspective. And so, you know, there is there's a strong effort here at the center to in, inject prudence, inject common sense into analysis. So when when you have that that tension between self-described expertise and and common sense, uh, I like where the center sits there. Okay, so to wrap up, Mike and Kyle, um, you guys can each just talk about this for a bit, unless you both agree. But what would you say is the greatest national security threat to the United States today? Oh, I gotta go first. If you want, <laughs> um, I would say that it is the. Um, the, the establishment foreign policy and national security consensus and the negative inf, uh, negative foreign influence uh, on our decision-making process, um, some of which M Mike touched upon when talking about, you know, think tanks taking foreign money. But there's... Um, there, there's a there's a, a lockstep group think in Washington about how we should approach things in national security, and it is... It is causing us to make mistakes. It is making putting the country at risk, and and making everything more dangerous. And that problem is larger than any particular threat, of which there are many. There are jihadist threats. There's threats from from China. There's domestic security threats. Uh, but all of those things pale in comparison to an establishment which is not willing to apply common sense, which is not willing to understand threats as they exist and and operates on the basis of this this dried um, outdated consensus and that's the thing that I think is most important for us to change if we want if we want to solve any of our other national security problems yeah well, we're faced with right now Russia can incinerate our whole country within the hour if Putin wanted to the Chinese government could almost do the same if it wanted to yet those aren't our biggest threats our biggest threat is really our own surrender of our own sovereignty as a nation to subsume the United States of America to global organizations that are dominated by our enemies or just not dominated by us. They, we created them for us to dominate them, and we surrendered that. So when we've surrendered our own concept of sovereignty, whether it's taking things to the United Nations when we should be deciding what's in our own interests, or even securing our own borders, let alone having think tanks that advise and staff the President of the United States taking money from the Communist Chinese. And somehow that's okay in Washington, which gets to Kyle's point of the establishment consensus, because all of that is okay, because that's how our philosophy has developed over the years. You add on to that the whole 1619 Project philosophy and critical race theory that we're an evil country settled by evil people based on evil institutions that have no redeeming value. So we should hate ourselves and fight each other. Once, once we completely lose our national identity and our sovereignty, we're done as a country. 
So the good news is that we can turn it around if we want, right? Yes, it can be done pretty easily. Right. I think uh, once you saw with these recent elections with the school boards and the, and the parents really deciding the election based on that, they, people kind of knew but didn't really believe it was that bad that the schools were brainwashing their kids. But now that they saw it so grotesquely and that the governor of Virginia said parents have don't have the right to educate their kids, that's the government taking over families, which a lot of people are okay with. Mm -hmm. A lot of Americans are okay with it. But the average American isn't, and even the average uh, liberal American really is not okay with it once it affects their own family or their own personal interests. So there's a way to take the country back, but it's going to be really hard, and it won't be the same country that we had. And, and I think also there we've come a long way in terms of ending this deference to self-described experts and bureaucrats, uh, some of which <laughs> has come about just because of the circumstances. Um, and Dr. Fauci. And, and Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it was also highlighted by the Trump administration where the people saw that they were, they elected a president who is supposed to have certain powers to achieve certain things. And then he was not allowed to achieve them. Now, uh, some of that was his own inexperience and decisions on staffing, uh, but a lot of it was a, a bureaucracy and a deep state that really did refuse to carry out orders, that did refuse to um, tell the truth uh, to the president on certain topics. And I think going into it, uh, next time we, we get a Trump-like presidential figure, I think the American people are going to say, yes, we we demand change on some of these things uh and we we will you know we encourage the president to take the steps that are legally available to him in order to make those changes so that we can get back to uh, a country that we recognize um where decisions are made in the public by elected officials they're not made uh in the dark by by bureaucrats who are not accountable thank you for listening to today's show not cleared is a project of the center for security policy we want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notclear.org so we can get in touch with you.